Have you ever considered studying the Middle Ages at postgraduate level? Apply to CEU now. The Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University in Budapest, Hungary provides intellectually challenging comparative and multidisciplinary postgraduate education on all aspects of the history and culture of the period from 300 to 1600, from late antiquity to the early modern period, Byzantium and the Ottoman Empire. The department currently offers four internationally recognized degree programs, one-year and two-year MA programs and PhD in Medieval Studies, and MA in Cultural Heritage Studies. The language of instruction is English. Generous and merit-based scholarships are available to students from any country. Study with us in a highly stimulating environment and international student body, and apply until February 1st, 2017. For further details, please visit our website at medievalstudies.ceu.edu. This is Past Perfect, CU Medieval Radio's program on medieval and early modern history and culture, in association with Civil Radio FM 98. Hello there, I'm Christopher Melke, and you're listening to Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio's show on medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. We have a lot of very exciting guests here on Past Perfect, and today we're joined by a really, really big name in the historical field. Joining us today is Natalie Zeman Davis. Her career has spanned um, many, many decades, and she's made several interesting contributions. I could spend the entire hour talking about them, but um, for now I'll just say that she received her PhD at the University of Michigan. She's taught at Brown University, the University of Toronto, the University of California at Berkeley, and um, also at Princeton University. Currently, she's the adjunct professor of history and anthropology, as well as a professor of medieval studies at the University of Toronto. And uh, most recently, um, I learned she was a named Companion of the Order of Canada this past year. She also has her own Wikipedia page, one of the few academics I know who can um, have that claim to fame. So after that very lengthy introduction, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very glad to be here, Chris, and be part of the CEU Medieval Radio Program, a pioneering program. It was very hard um, coming up with a program for us to talk about because uh, it, it's it's not just that your career has spanned several decades, it's that you have been involved in so many and so many varied different fields of history. Now, I first came to know about you when I was a wee, a wee taught um, <laughs> as an undergraduate in my historiography class, and we were going through the various um, traditions, and I first heard about you in connection with microhistory. Since that was my introduction uh, to you and to your work, I'd um, like to start there, uh, if you don't mind. Um, just um, a very a brief overview in your words over um, what microhistory is, uh, what are the sources, how it's used, and what it can offer as approach. <laughs> microhistory is a, a formal term mm -hmm. invented by... Uh, Giovanni Levy and Carlo Ginzburg in connection with some studies they did mm -hmm. on very focused uh, figures in a very focused environment in uh, a Renaissance towns in Italy. I start out with that because that one can call microhistory different things. Sure. This is a convenient word that we've got 
used. And let me give a second introduction to say that in my own movement toward microhistory, I had experimented. I had done other kinds of histories as well. Sure. I had, and this helps you understand what can be the use of, of a focused approach. I had done studies in which I looked at large groups of artisans and their interest in the Protestant Reformation, studies when I looked at large groups of rural peasants mm-hmm. uh, and city folk and their interest in 16th century carnival and the a transformation of carnival into a political resistance. I had looked at large collections of printed books to ask the question of who their audience might be. Sure. So I came to a focused study having looked at and loved working on many cases. I see microhistory as one of several ways of looking at the past. Well, what would be the advantage? Okay. I'll tell you my own story. Having done these more general studies, I became deeply interested in an anthropological approach to the past. Mm -hmm. Certain kinds of questions that anthropologists ask about religion, about symbolism, about family life, and which they could answer because their subjects were living, couldn't be so readily answered by a scholar whose subjects were maybe 800 or 500 (laughs) years long dead. Yes, this is true. We we needed, and they couldn't always be answered by taking large groups Mm -hmm. uh, where you could look at things like forms of festivity or forms of resistance or reading patterns. Mm -hmm. So one of the advantages of having a specific story to work on is that if you can get the source materials, you can dig more deeply or you could at least ask questions that go into areas of intimate life or look at forms of relationships that are close, kin relationships, look at forms of affect that perhaps you can't get in these larger studies, personal affect. With that general set of concerns, I came across a court case of, uh, of an imposter, Martin Gare, mm-hmm. uh, the famous Martin Gare case, which involved a peasants and so forth, and a peasant who complained somebody else's life. And I immediately saw it as a way to get at powerful issues that weren't clear, couldn't surface mm-hmm. in general studies, where you had many, many cases. Here was a story which moved you into areas of family conflict, of personal identity, of village quarrels about property and about inheritance, all of which are tied up. When Carlo Ginsburg decided to do this kind of work, mm-hmm. uh, he had a villager with very unusual, very radical ideas expressed in a trial by the Inquisition, which one couldn't necessarily get in a large study. Mm-hmm. And he had this individual story, which he could then make work for a larger set of questions about what was possible for people to think in 16th century religious, uh, in a 16th century religious village framework. So I've, I've already suggested two things about what <laughs> microhistory is. Uh-huh. It takes a case in which very important issues are embedded, mm-hmm. issues that you can't necessarily get with big lots of representative samples, and it has significance beyond itself. Uh, in Carlo Ginsburg's case, the significance was to address the, the possibilities in rural thought. Mm-hmm. In my case, it had to do with thinking about the possibilities in peasant self-representation, in peasant intimacy, in peasant family life, in, in peasant crafting of self. 
and peasant imposture and so forth, and a way to look at that more widely in 16th century French society as a case in self-formation, identity formation, which goes way beyond the worlds of peasants and is part of 16th century social mobility and in the middle class and the the nobility. So those are the things that make microhistory exciting, that they are wonderful stories to Mm -hmm. begin with. They they usually have a great narrative line. Uh, That that was what I fell in love with with the Martin Gare case, was that this was a great story there. Uh, They have rich and uh, unusual sources for parts of life that you can't get otherwise. And thirdly, well, there's a third aspect that you can sometimes reach a broader audience this way. Not necessarily. I mean, if you look at Eric Hobsbawm's writings, Mm -hmm. which have a big scope in in modern, in in the age of revolution about the 19th century, his reach huge audiences too. But it is is also uh, the case that with these very focused stories, you can sometimes bring a larger reading public to to get interested in the medieval past or the 16th century past. The question finally, though, (laughs) is what about the sources? Especially if you're taking as your micro-history case people in villages, which is what I did and what uh, Carlo Ginsburg did and others are doing. There's a lot of wonderful new work. It's a challenge. Many of us have started off with court cases because that is a way in which the civil authorities uh, listen into mm-hmm. or take account of when some kind of crime comes up, they start paying attention uh-huh. to the ideas and sentiments and hopes of rural people. I mean, you can get them also in tax accounts, uh, and you can get them in uh, rural people in cadastres and tax inventories, as you medievalists know very well. Oh, yes. <laughs> but, but this is a way to get other kinds of information. Mm-hmm. And then you have to work very uh, carefully to assess in these formal, formulaic ways of questioning people, and sometimes under torture, though that wasn't didn't happen to be the case in Martin Gare, but mm-hmm. sometimes under torture, uh, how to use these texts, to use them not only as a source for judicial me- mechanisms, for ju- judicial inquiry, or as a source for record-keeping, which they are too, but as a source for village sentiment and, and the personal lives of the people interrogated. You can also go beyond this, and I've, I did it, did this with, with your core source by getting everything you can about, say, the village. Let's say your, your case is a village study, or it could be an urban study, but in addition to your, your core source people, the mm-hmm. people that you're trying to follow, to enrich your understanding of, of that, as I tried to do and others do there when they do microhistory, by reading everything you can mm-hmm. about the social life, that is the marriage contracts, the tax records, whatever, whatever else there is available, right, right, right. going beyond the individual family or families that you're following. I also, it's, you, know, you then use further collateral materials from literary sources, which are very carefully used. They're not necessarily direct representations, but you read those as well. There are Any, ideas Anything that there. can bear upon this, mm-hmm. uh, you, you use to fill in while always coming back to the main narrative of the family, the micro case that you're following. Yes. And it's, it's exciting research. It's sometimes full <laughs> of frustration when you get to a moment of silence, as I sometimes did oh. in the Martin Gare case, but it's very exciting. <laughs> I was telling one of my friends about I'm trying to do this interview and sort of trying to explain in so many words what microhistory was uh, to him and his reply was oh so it's taking a specific case and going from the, gen- the to going to the general and I'm like 
On one hand, it is, but it's a lot more than that. And I think you really encapsulated a lot of that very well. I think the one thing to remember in that movement from Mm -hmm. the specific to the general is that you raise the question of representativeness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes people throw this up against microhistory. I don't think uh, the story that you take has to be representative, but you try to show how it feeds into our understanding Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of what I would call the possibilities of the past, the range in behavior. Uh, Carlo Ginsburg's Minocchio was not representative of peasant thought. He was a radical extreme, but it it, it expands your sense of the possibilities. The case of Martin Gare, the imposter, the uh, the man, Arnaud de who took over the role of Martin Gare when mm-hmm. Martin Gare had left his wife and gone off for several years. Yes. <laughs> he isn't necessarily representative. He exposes to us the possibilities of self-representation, of self-fashioning, to use Montaigne's phrase mm-hmm. in the 16th century. And he, he opens up a, a field of thought rather than representing the, the standard, if there is such a thing in any period. <laughs> One of the things that it's it's very easy to forget is that the past is made up of people, and people are have a, an extremely wide range of actions that they are capable of. And I think that you know whether or not you know a microhistory case is representative is really a, a moot point if you're trying to look at it as one example of thousands. Mm-hmm. For me, I'm very sensitive to issues of source material because I keep I keep looking at my own material and thinking there should be more. <laughs> Why isn't this there? It should be there, but it's not. What's wrong with it? Well, <laughs> I asked that question in regard for, to the Martin Gare case. Okay. Uh, why isn't there more? A few years ago, some historians in France decided to do a celebration for the 25th anniversary of my book on the return of Martin Gare uh-huh. and asked me to contribute something. So I said, I would like to go back to the archives, all the ones I used. I used four or five different archives in the south of France where this case took place yes. and see if I can find anything new. Not anything new about the general story, not anything new about land holding patterns among peasants or family patterns. I had done, really, I had done quite a lot on that. But I had only found four documents other than the court case itself where someone from the family of Martin Gare, that is Martin Bertrand de Rolls, his wife, Pierre Gare, the uncle who was the patriarch of the family, and Arnaud de Tee, who was the imposter who found his way into the bed of Bertrand de Rolls, who seemed to be very willing to receive him. (laughs) And I had found some cases. I mean, I actually had them. I I had their texts. But I I, I really wanted more. For instance, I had never found the original marriage contract, but only the reference to it in the court case. I I had not found the, the final will of Martin Gare. I'd only found the uh, an arrangement made by his children after he had died. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'm going to go back. I went back and I read it, every single archive and a whole bunch more. Uh-huh. And I, I did find some interesting things, but I didn't find one more document specifically right. where they were involved. And I started out by trying to congratulate myself and say, well, you did a good job the first time. And and I had lots of fun with some of the things, extraneous things I found. I found some wonderful new side elements. But I asked myself exactly your question that you're asking for your medieval queens and their, <laughs> their collections. Mm-hmm. Why isn't there more? And it, it is because 
Why? And I called my paper The Silences of the Archives, <laughs> the, re- the renown of the story, because it's a story that these popular stories get retold. And it really is connected with these being peasants, that courts, uh, as I mentioned before, are our most likely sources because the personal and life of intimate life of people who are mostly illiterate at this period mm-hmm, is not going to be recorded in other ways. Uh, this is a reflection of what of, of what the society wants to get information about, and I think that's an interesting fact that the silences teach us something about what is what a society wants to record. So we can take some consolation from that. Thank you very much. We're going to take a a very short break, but we'll be back momentarily. Welcome back. I'm Christopher Melke uh, here with Past Perfect, and uh, we're joined today by Natalie Zeman Davis. Thank you very much for being here. Glad to be here, Chris. We um, talked a bit in the first section about some of uh, your work um, on microhistory and got to hear a little bit about the fascinating case of Martin Gare and uh, for this uh, segment, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, your work on the um, Protestant printers in Lyon, in France, and um, specifically the question. Uh, one of the one of the issues that you tackle the, these specific cases and talking about them in, in, in a broader context is sort of official religious practices um, and popular religious practices. So. How would you define, or is there a line that can be drawn between official and re- official religion and popular religion, mm-hmm. in your opinion? The first thing I'd say is that it's all religion. Fair. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I think that's important <laughs> because in the 16th and 17th century, uh, in medi- late medieval times, uh, all the way through the early modern period, uh, reformers often made a a distinction between magic and superstition on one hand Mm -hmm. and real religion on the other, which was whatever the authorities, the religious authorities were trying to teach. And the rest was thought of as something that was either diabolic, that it didn't count Mm -hmm. as a way of addressing the sacred. Until fairly recently, historians sometimes use those same uh, distinctions when they were telling the story Maybe good in a good-hearted fashion, not in the fashion of a reproving priest or a reproving uh, Protestant patcher, but mm-hmm. they would uh, use it as a way of categorizing mm-hmm. the the past and the importance of educating rural people or city illiterate city folk into true religion. So I think I I start off by saying that, uh, and this is something I had to learn myself. Uh, as I worked on on what some people call popular religion, that it's that it's all ways of addressing the sacred. Sure. Let me give some examples just from my own work, and then try to give some general thoughts here. Mm-hmm. I started working on the religion of the Menupep, the little people, for my doctoral dissertation, which was on the printing workers of 16th century Lyon mm-hmm. uh, during the Reformation, and. At the time I started, this is way back in the 1950s, the history of the Reformation was well treated, but in really only in the terms of the, the great figures, Luther, Calvin, right, Zwingli right. and others, or in the figures of great political reformers or, or, or hard-boiled political reformers who were adopting Lutheranism, mm-hmm. fighting against Calvinism, whatever. <clears throat> These are and or the political thought or uh, theology theology went with this very important, but in the fifties I really wanted to look at 
uh, and this is partly because I was very interested in doing a social history, mm-hmm. and I was a kind of a uh, independent left winger <laughs> young person. I wanted to look at, uh, and I thought from a scholarly point of view, it would be innovative to look at popular interest in the Reformation and what difference it it made to the history of, in this case, Calvinism, because I was working on France. And what I found in my work has changed over the years as I moved from a kind of more limited kind of social history to doing what I would call a broader cultural history, a more anthropologically inspired look at, at religion. And what I, what I found uh, was two things, really, that that in some ways it's important not to make a distinction between official religion and popular religion if you mean by that the popular religion isn't quite right or it's ill-informed or it's ignorant or it's a weaker – there are certain themes, say let's take the Reformation, mm-hmm. such as the priesthood of all believers, the importance of reading the Bible, mm-hmm. which cut vertically th- throughout – the whole movement. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, that we couldn't be a movement if that if that weren't the case. And the, the challenge to the historian is to try to understand how such an idea, such a belief. To me, what was important was what people believed, what they took as a believable argument about doctrine, how it how it got to them, how it circulated, how it was interpreted, how it fit with their own social experience, and uh, and was confirmed by that social experience as well as confirmed by what they read and or were, or, or told. So I think in some sense one, one should be open to verticality, things that cut across social lines, mm-hmm. but also to look at differences, not just differences between official and popular. I mean, those are <laughs> artificial categories in mm-hmm. a way, but differences that have to do with milieus and networks, the difference between a woman's network sure. and a men's network on both the elite levels of society and the urban levels. Um, is is also deeply important, and sometimes there's crossovers, so, uh, depending on literacy rates, depending on on the gender hierarchies in a society. For instance, on on this question of Bible reading, the circles of women, one of whom would be reading aloud, could give it a certain kind of interpretation, say to texts from Paul about whether women should speak in church, uh, from what might go on in men's circles. What, one of the things that's interesting about Protestantism on both the levels of the elites and the level of the, the menu the little people, mm-hmm. is, for instance, on this gender question, that women were called to read the scripture, if they could. This brought a lot of reproof and criticism by the Catholics, but this was the case. And in the services, Calvinist services, mm-hmm. women um, and men were both present together and sang together. That is, they right, didn't maybe right. even sit together, but they sang the psalms together, which also led to uh, criticism and even ridicule on the part of the Catholics who said, we have good choirs, and these people, they, you can't even follow them when they, <laughs> they, they corrupt the psalms. So the contrasts that I'm making are less between official religion and popular. Uh-huh. I'm making contrasts sort of cultural contrast between the religious styles of groups, which sometimes include people across class. Now, let's take, finally, the more sensitive case, where you get what would be called magic and superstition. I've taken a case where there was differences in religious doctrine. The Catholics might call the Protestants heretics. The Protestants might call the Catholics uh, idolaters or something. Mm -hmm. But let's take a case where the accusation is made of superstition. And here we're talking about a very wide range of practice, which involves uh, can involve amulets, 
and yes. prayers that have been snatched from both uh, some some popular old tradition and from religious religious tradition might even be scraps of paper that come from uh, the uh, from the Bible or maybe a little bit of the sacred wafer mixed in with something else. We're talking about uh, layings on of hands, not by priests, not mm-hmm. by in the ritual of a Catholic priest. The uh, creation of herbal concoctions that are prayed over. We're talking about a very, very wide range of of behavior. Some some of which can veer off into wishing harmful harm against enemies. Right. Now, the only thing to say about that is that it should be, in my view, and I think in the view of an anthropologist, uh, it has been said, is that that should not be discounted as as having no relationship to the sacred. Mm-hmm. Indeed, the harmful aspects of it shouldn't even be discounted from, from what people believe about religion because if you look at at the Mass, it has sections in which you can pray against your enemy, against the enemy. Sure, sure, it has sure. prayers against for war. Mm-hmm. It has prayers mm-hmm. against enemies. As, so does Protestantism. So does their 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 prayers in Judaism, uh, very strong prayers against one's enemies. So so that just because it introduces um, harmfulness mm-hmm. doesn't mean that. And I'm not just assessing whether it's, anything whether it's true or false. I'm just saying that it should be looked at right, right, right. as a form of address to, to use of sacred what people consider to be sacred forces. And if we don't do this, there are whole realms of human religious practice. Uh, right now, I happen to be working on on 18th century slave, 17th, 18th century slavery, starting off with the religious practices in in Africa itself. And there are forms there that are denounced by missionaries as superstitious, but are taken very seriously as uh, as religion. Mm-hmm. This is where the gods are. Right, right, right. So I think that's that's one of the I think the fruitful things that has grown out of this conflict. This this interesting historiographical conflict about where the lines are is that we look at the location of religion and its practices, its performances, the whole range, including liturgical, and we locate it in different contexts, and and we're attentive to what authorities say and and their means of investigating or punishing. But we don't necessarily uh, rigidify it into artificial categories of popular and official. I think that the division, I think you're very right to point out how how arbitrary it is because the for instance, um, I, the example that I that I was that I kept thinking of was um, gemstones. In that there is this tradition that you have lapidaries borrowed from texts like Pliny, for instance, that talk about all of the apotro- apotropaic and healing effects. If you want to avoid drunkenness in the morning, be sure to wear an amethyst oh, on your ring and things yes. like that. And I think in Sir, Sir Thomas More in Utopia actually pokes fun at that notion in, yeah. in, in the book one over, you know, how silly it is to have all these <laughs> rocks and pebbles that don't do anything, but <laughs> that you believe that they're protecting you, like, yes. you know, the star sapphire will protect you against poison, like, really. And, yes. and so you, you get a lot of interesting yes. stories in that yes. regard. But You know, I think in some ways we can use this material mm-hmm. not only to to understand the range of our human use of the world around us to to find a way to the sacred and to deal with good to, to good luck and a good future but we can even use the arguments about them in a creative way not just see them as um, 
sort of the negative versus the positive, but as a really quite fundamental feature about religious life. You know, arguing about what the best way to mm-hmm. worship the sacred uh, and making sure that the other person doesn't have the right way, that they're wearing the wrong stones, <laughs> that they shouldn't be wearing stones at all, uh, the best way to guarantee that, that the gods look favorably on them. That's part of – that's really part of religion. Uh, instead of seeing it as as uh, as only an obstruction mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or only looking at the categories, as I've just suggested, as something that we don't want to adopt as our own categories, we could look at these arguments as – as uh, you know, going back to the, our scriptures, the scriptures are the the, the, old, the the Old Testament is full of arguments about which is the right way to do it, and that's very much the case in our religious sure, world sure. today. We are arguing across the board about the right way to to be uh, Jewish, to be Protestant, to be Muslim, uh, to be whatever, mm-hmm. and that in some ways is, is if if religion is thought of as as also bringing people together. Some of the best forms of it, or not not best in a moral sense, but some of the most vivid forms, are people arguing, sometimes fighting, alas, about what the what the best way to do it is. On that note, we'll take a very short break, but we will be back momentarily. Welcome back. This is Past Perfect, a CEU Medieval Radio Show on uh, medieval and early modern history and culture in association with Civil Radio FM 98. I'm Christopher Melke, um, and we're joined today by Natalie Zeman Davis. Um, thank you very much for being here. Glad to be here again. We've covered a lot of bases so far um, with uh, your work, and I wanted to I wanted to touch on another one. One of your um, one of your more recent books is um, called Trickster Travels. In particular, what I found most interesting um, for this period was the level of interaction between uh, Europe and Africa um, in this period. So. What does this really tell us about that level of interaction between the two communities? The subtitle uh, of that book, I love subtitles, <laughs> is A 16th Century Muslim Between Worlds. Oh. And its hero is not an imposter, as in the case of my Martin Gare story, <laughs> but rather a man whom Europeans knew over the centuries, since the 16th century, as Leo Africanus, quote-unquote, Leo Africanus, right. but whose real name was Al-Hassan ibn Muhammad ibn Ahmed al-Wazan, <laughs> uh, a, a lad uh, born in Granada when the Muslims were still holding that, but very soon, uh, Granada, which very soon was taken over by the Catholic monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, yeah. and who was taken to uh, Morocco by his parents, uh, raised as a Muslim there, uh, became uh, learned, uh, jurist, uh, studied theology, poet, traveled all over Africa as the diplomatic agent for the Sultan of Fez, uh, all the way across North Africa, did Hajj, was at the court of, of, of Ottoman Sultan Selim, mm. witnessed the conquest of Cairo, uh, of, of, of Egypt, uh, and the, the downfall of the, the Mamluk right, Empire right. To, to Selim, and then was captured in 1518 by Christian pirates 
uh, on the Mediterranean as he returned home to Fez. He was then taken to Italy after uh, about 15 months or so in the papal prison at Castel St. Angelo, quite well treated. He was given, he was not in a dungeon, he was given many books to read, to cat- he was catechized. Mm-hmm. He finally decided that if he wanted to uh, not become a galley slave or be sold into slavery, uh, he would better convert. And he did. Uh-huh. Uh, and was given the names Giovanni Leone by Pope Leo X himself. Huh. Giovanni de Medici, Pope Leo. Uh, he then stayed, so his name was not Leo Africanus. His name was Giovanni Leone. Right. Uh, he stayed, or Johanna al-Assad, to give the Arabic version, which is how I know him from his Arabic manuscripts. He stayed in Italy for the next seven years, mm-hmm. uh, uh, first teaching Arabic to Europeans, to high-placed churchmen, uh, and then writing, learning how to write from uh, left to right rather than right to left in oh, a right. quill pen rather than the reed pen and learning Italian and Latin well enough to write. And he then wrote a set of books telling Europeans about the world he had left behind, about Africa, about its history, about all the places he had traveled to and those he hadn't but that he knew about, mm-hmm. about its customs, its ethnography, about Islam, about its poetry. He was a poet himself. He wrote a book of biographies of, of learned Arabs and uh, also learned Jews from the Arabic world. He wrote a book about about uh, Islam, about the Muhammad and 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 the Maliki the Malachite Maliki law that was current, the Sharia law current in his in the Maghreb, his part of Africa. He wrote a book about Arabic prosody. In other words, so in these texts written in a, in he did some things in in, in Arabic as well. Mm-hmm. Most in, interestingly, an Arabic. Hebrew Latin dictionary done in collaboration with a learned Jew. No kidding. Uh, very, very interesting text. So what? So to go back to the question of how you can use him as a figure between worlds, which was the <laughs> theme of my book, and the, the reason I wanted to write about him, I wanted to write about someone who crossed boundaries and was not in a fixed culture with fine boundaries, but who traveled something that seems to me extremely important for our times, <laughs> a real object lesson. Uh, that that he, in his whole case study of of uh, another micro history of someone who stayed as a seeming Christian, and I think he was interested, in, not converted, but interested in Christianity, who, who stayed there, uh, his his writings and his life exemplify the possibilities of mixing different traditions. He, he is writing about this world. Not for people back home. He did go back home after and return to Islam. As far as we can see, he did in mm-hmm. 1527. He's writing about that world for Europeans. So in the documents themselves, where he makes comparisons between Europe and North Africa, uh, where he writes about uh, Arabic prosody so Europeans can understand it, the documents itself are texts given the fact of his audience and his language uh, and the introduction of Arabic words into the text, which he then transliterates in this amusing Italian way. Uh, you can sort of recognize the Arabic, but right. it's funny. Uh, in, some of, in a few of his texts, you actually see the Arabic. He writes it in Arabic as well. Um, in his text on prosody, you actually see it. In his biographies, he occasionally puts Arabic poetry in, in both languages. So the texts themselves are mixtures. He also exemplifies for me strategies of what I call living between two worlds. He, for instance, uh, took on the 
Arabic theory, the, the Muslim theory of taqiyya, which means the right to dissimulate under circum- in regard to religion, as long as you, you stay true in your heart to Islam, under situations of coercion. I see. It's like the Moriscos uh-huh. uh, in, in, well, it's the kind of thing that the Moriscos did in Spain when they were forced to convert, and it's like the Jews did, the conversos. Right. Some of them were sincere convert converts uh, to the Spanish or Portuguese Inquisition, but many simply were what the, what is called Moranos or, or, or conversos, that mm-hmm. is, they, they practiced secretly uh, forms of Judaism, kept Judaism in their heart. So this is a doctrine that is known that is that was was being recommended to Moriscos already in 1500, and it's that kind of thing. But what that he adopted in in deciding to convert to Christianity, there's no sign that he ever accepted the divinity of Christ. Mm-hmm. But he was also wanting to perf- to be there and to sort of perform Christianity, to communicate with Christians, mm-hmm. and in some sense, uh, he so he. But the do- doctrine of dissimulation, as I've just suggested by looking, talking about Moranos and Moriscos, especially the Moranos, is not just a North African doctrine. It's a shared yeah. perspective. And I, in, in talking about him, I think he suggests ways in which you have differences, I mean, let's say on the divinity of Christ, which really distinguishes him from the Christians. Mm-hmm. But it also shows ways in which the strategy of how to cross, be, me, to live between worlds can be a shared strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are some of the ways that his his life uh, helps us. I'll add one other thing okay. about him. In order to live between worlds, he and not def- offend his Christian patrons, right. which would have been very dangerous. But also, as he always, as he said, always plan to go back eventually. Not write texts or that would be offensive to if a Muslim world if they found him, and they could have through diplomatic. There were Ottoman diplomats in Venice. They, mm-hmm. And that book, his manuscripts were known in Venice. That situation in which he found himself at a time when Pope Leo and then Pope Clement VII, his, his Medici successor eventually the papacy, were calling for a crusade at a time when Salim and then Solomon the Magnificent was leading all, his own holy war against the West. Mm-hmm. For him to try to sustain a mood of crossing right. was quite an achievement, and he does it in his books. God, he does yeah, it in his right. books, not only by mingling motifs, but by writing about Islam and about it with extraordinary, just descriptive. It's neither pro nor con. It's right, not right, as a Muslim right. would write it. But it's not as a as a ardent believing Christian convert would write it either, mm-hmm. and it's not as a prop, as a as a polemicist would write it. So the yeah. text itself is an extraordinary form of what we sometimes call Erasmian detachment, mm-hmm. but, but even more in its in its descriptive detachment coming from someone who identifies himself as formally. I mean, it's clear from writing. He doesn't say I was formally a Muslim, but it's clear. He says. It's clear that it, yeah, there's no yeah, way you yeah. can miss the fact that this is a text for, by a Muslim. And yet he's not practicing, but he's not practicing Christianity either. It's a just very interesting descriptive text which hangs between two forms of, of, of religion or three forms if we include Judaism. Sure. It sounds like a, almost a precursor to ethnography, almost the, the way you're talking about the description of this. It's full of descriptions of foods, mm-hmm. textiles. I've just done a new piece just on the, on the different crafts he describes. And it, it's also 
uh, though it's very interesting reading for European readers, the Africa book, which is which he when he went back to North Africa, he left manuscripts behind of that, and was published later, very much edited, I have to say, but okay. but but uh, but became a bestseller, a learned bestseller, translated into several languages over the centuries, uh, has been read. Uh, and he, one thing he did, which is characteristic of Arabic writing, but is loved by Europeans, it's full of good stories. If you oh, want, it's full of micro-history. <laughs> and that is, that is considered a requirement for adab, for what's called adab in Arabic, really good literary oh. writing. Oh, you right. can't just, just, you know, be stiff. You have to break into poetry, uh, which he even does, although that was let, edited out mm-hmm. by the, uh, by the, his later humanist Latin, uh, his humanist Italian writer, uh, but you have to tell interesting stories. So it's full of anecdotes. Good. Very cool. And um, very quickly, I do have to ask, um, on, on, on the way over to the studio, you were talking a bit about um, this, is, this has been something that's been organized into a play. Is that correct? That is right. Uh, the Stratford, Ontario... Shakespeare Festival mm-hmm. had commissioned a play a few years ago based on my book. And the playwright uh, is the wonderful Wajdi Muawad, originally from Lebanon, uh, grew up uh, during the civil wars. He grew up and was tr- studied as a pupil in, in France mm-hmm. and then became one of Canada's most distinguished Quebecois, francophone playwrights, now lives in France. And he is weaving together. So it's quite wonderful to work. I'm a little bit between worlds myself as I'm both a U.S. and Canadian citizen and I'm of Jewish background, but I'm also in a family of people of other religions. Mm -hmm. And he is too. He's a Maronite Christian from Lebanon, uh, (laughs) married to a Tunisian woman of of French and Jewish origin and Catholic and French and Jewish. And we all are mixed up. And the two of us are working together on this figure who crosses boundaries. And his play... Uh, which he has been workshopping and which will be performed both in German and in, in Berlin and in, in Stratford, Ontario. His play links together two stories, one a contemporary story involving a, an Israeli family that have migrated to Berlin in the 20th century and the story of Al-Wazan and a young historian and, and her older lady teacher who are working on Al-Wazan and and always on becomes, and his this man between two worlds becomes a way of speaking to some of the issues that are part of our present day world uh-huh. of crossing identities, of conflict, and yet of hope for finding paths that will allow people to live in peace with each other. Before we go to um, the break, I have to ask why trickster. Well, th- this is something that uh, grew out of the looking at his, at his range of strategies, of which I've only given one, of mm-hmm. trying to live between his range of personal tragedies, not just his writing. And the first notion was that of, of, of taki, of dissimulation. But the way I work, I don't just take one 
form of legitimation. So I began to read much more, and I've always been very interested in the carnivalesque and disguise in my earlier writing. So I began to read about the, the literature of the fool figure. And and what the word trickster is a Western word. You mm-hmm. can't find the quite exactly the equivalent in in Arabic. But you have many many examples uh, in the Arabic uh, shadow theater mm-hmm. uh, and in uh, and in Ottoman uh, as well in Ottoman Turkish and North African uh, uh, writing uh, and and folklore and proverbs of 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 trickster figures. The most important literary example, and this is deeply central to my thinking, is a 9th, 10th century genre, uh, uh, Arabic, first Persian and Arabic genre, called the makamah, makamat, and that means assembly. Mm-hmm. And it's a, sto- a story, uh, a set of stories, always told by a traveler to his assembled friends mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. about his visits to one town or another. In each place, he meets he describes a figure who might be a judge in one case, he might be a beggar in the other, he might be a physician in the other, he might be a kind of scoundrel or scamp in another, who is always doing something quite fascinating and ending up on his feet with gifts or something or other, but always breaks into some wonderful poetry, which often has a religious implications to it. And the narrator, the merchant traveler narrator says, and then I went up to him and I found... I asked him, aren't you Sheikh Abdullah from Cairo? <laughs> or aren't you Sheikh Ahmed from uh, from Alexandria? And he always turns out to be the same person. <laughs> so you have this nomadic, <laughs> disguised figure who's what we would might call a trickster and uh-huh. that he always ends up with things working out and who becomes, through his poetry, a truth-teller. And in, huh. and, and in some... Learned, I've just read an, another learned study, or even a mystic. So you see, when I had not only a popular lore about disguise and dissimulation and tricks, trick, tricks, both good and bad, mm-hmm. and the dissimulation takia allowed in Islamic by Islamic law, and a great popular literary genre, which my man refers to, I had the cluster of of values and traditions that were known to my man that I could use to, to, to present him. And he himself tells a story about himself as a trickster, and maybe I can end by saying this. He says in his Africa book, once there was a, uh, a bird uh, who was an amphibious bird who could live either on the, on the water or on, in the uh, air. Uh-huh. And whenever the tax, he lived in the air until the taxpayer of, of the king came along to catch the taxes for the, each year, for the bir- from the birds, and then he would fly to the sea and say to the fish, "You know me, I'm one of you." And he would live among the fish until the, the king's <laughs> taxpayer for the fish came along to collect the taxes, and then he would zoom out of the water and fly to the air. And so he lived, Alwazan says in his Africa book, uh, for all the rest of his life without ever paying any taxes. And and then he says, so I will do like the bird. He's been talking – it's a part of the book where he's talking about the importance of telling the truth about Africans, the good with the bad. Okay. But he says, you know, maybe if I tell the truth, which I must do, you readers will think of me as only having the bad traits. So what I'm going to do is do like the the amphibious bird. If you come along and say to me – well, you you lived in Africa. You're like the Africans. Oh, but I I was born in Granada. 
And if you come along and say, well, you have the bad traits of the Grenadians, say, oh, but I was brought up in Africa. Africa. So I thought when he tells this story in his own book, he's warning the readers, don't pin me down. Yeah. I cross barteries. I'll truth tell to you, but I may be in disguise. Well, if 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 a person from the past gives you a story like that, yeah. you run with it. <laughs> we'll take a very short break and be back momentarily. Welcome back. Uh, I'm Christopher Melke with Past Perfect, and uh, we're joined today by Natalie Zeman Davis. So your career has spanned so long, and one of the things that amazes uh, me about you is how you just keep going. And so for our, con- our, our concluding um, segment, I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, your current project or projects. My current project is about slavery in 17th and 18th century Suriname, uh, formerly a Dutch colony mm-hmm. in uh, Latin America, in South America, uh, right next to uh, uh, French Guyana mm-hmm. <laughs> and British and former British Guyana, now Guyana. People often <laughs> say, where is Suriname? <laughs> and though it may sound very far removed from Alwazan and crossing the Mediterranean, in fact, this Caribbean study is thematically related to that. I'm still interested in people between worlds and crossing boundaries in situations which are fraught with tension. Here, the boundaries between, the, or the borders between slave and free, uh-huh. between black and white, between, well, actually religions, because Suriname is made of, of people from several different uh, parts of the world, not only many, many, I mean, it's majority society of Africans in sure. the early modern period. There are about 50,000 slaves, a few thousand free black people, uh, many freed slaves who are living as maroons, running, having run away from the plantations in the rainforest, okay. indigenous peoples. There's the Caribs, Arawaks, and Wayanas were not all, were not, did not all die out there as they have almost in many other places. There, there, there were some substantial, and Europeans, not just Dutch Calvinists, but Europeans from many parts of Western Europe, mm-hmm. uh, Protestants, Reformed, Lutherans, very large Jewish population. About a third of the population were Portuguese or, or German Jews. Oh, it's a very interesting world. But I am using the microhistory technique that we talked about early along. Uh-huh. I've taken one family of, of slaves— uh, whom I am following over four generations, starting finally, uh, fir- first of all, I say finally because I decided to do this, with the African generation. Uh-huh. I knew of this family uh, because John Gabriel Stedman, uh, in a book written, published in 1796, about his years as a soldier in Suriname, also wrote about his period of, of intimacy, of, of a kind of a fabricated marriage with a slave mulatto woman, as he called a woman of color, a mulatto woman. Mm-hmm. And I started out being interested in her and found her plantation. But then I decided to expand that her mother was even more interesting than she. Hmm. Uh, and her son with this European was very interesting. And I finally decided that if I really meant business about family continuity and about the importance of religion, which we talked about earlier, Uh I needed to start with Africa. So I'm following, uh, I'm always interested in the relationship at every stage with Europeans. So I'm following the kind of cross-class or class-social level 
and the cross-linguistic level, but I'm also interested in the continuity and, and, and breaks and in, in, in in innovations in the family itself. So as I say, I figured out a way from the plantation inventories, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you the source material for this microhistory has been really a challenge, oh, my, but I, I had the plantation inventories. Uh-huh. I pretty much figured out for sure who the great-grandfather was in the family. Probably I've got the right great-grandmother, and I could pretty much figure out the location. So I've been looking at both continuities and transformations in slave family life, in slave religious life, especially as seen from the point of view of the women, since they're main figures here, as they cross the ocean, move into, into Suriname, and then pass th- things on to from generation to generation. In each, in, in three or four cases, there were white males. <laughs> white, either in two cases, men whom you could almost really call lovers or partners. And in other cases, well, maybe three. It's two, one more strategic uh, and maybe not an affectionate relationship at all, and one that was just probably rape. So I've got ways of exploring intimate, different from the Martin Gare intimacies, ways of exploring intimacies here between black and white and asking what's at stake. It is an adventure to work, very challenging, but I figure I'm I'm old now, so I'll just take these challenges. But I want to bring these slave folks to life uh, and look at the continuity among the mothers and the mother to the grandmother to the daughter uh, and to see the legacy, which alas is not a legacy so much, as far as I can trace, in present-day descendants, because if that, that the, the, the most immediate line did not have descendants, the most immediate line. There are, there are coordin- co- uh, collateral descendants. But what is a legacy is the story, as told by the, the partner, because he, he really was Attached, He was manipulative toward this woman mm-hmm. uh, and left her behind when he went back to Europe. But he was genuinely attached. I can document that from his letters and his will. He was attached to her. But he left a legacy in a book which, though he himself did not believe in the abolition of slavery, he believed that some – there might be gradual manumission for special people like the woman that he had, had been affectionate – had affection toward. But he had so condemned – the, the cruelty of the masters in Suriname and it told a story about this woman that was so affecting that his book became an important source for the later abolitionists of slavery. Wow. So that is one of the legacies as well as the fact that we're talking about it today. We thank you so much for uh, um, coming in and uh, um, being interviewed by us. It has been a, such a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you for inviting me to be part of this wonderful adventure of bringing the Middle Ages and the early modern period to listeners all over the world. For you listeners back home, be sure to visit us um, on the web at www.medievalstudies.ceu.hu radio. Send us an email at medievalradio at ceu.hu. Be sure to like us on Facebook as well. Thank you for being here, uh, Professor Davis, and thank you um, for the listeners back home. Goodbye.
Have you ever considered studying the Middle Ages at postgraduate level? Apply to CEU now. The Department of Medieval Studies at Central European University in Budapest, Hungary provides intellectually challenging comparative and multidisciplinary postgraduate education on all aspects of the history and culture of the period from 300 to 1600, from late antiquity to the early modern period, Byzantium and the Ottoman Empire. The department currently offers four internationally recognized degree programs, one-year and two-year MA programs and PhD in Medieval Studies, and MA in Cultural Heritage Studies. The language of instruction is English. Generous and merit-based scholarships are available to students from any country. Study with us in a highly stimulating environment and international student body, and apply until February 1, 2017. For further details, please visit our website at medievalstudies.ceu.edu.